Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech in offshore renewables and how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Tony Quinn. I'm the Director of Technology Development at Ori Catapult, the UK's leading research and innovation centre for offshore renewables. We connect agile technology developers, academics and industry players working to accelerate the UK's wind, wave and tidal sectors. Today we're kicking off the latest mini-series in Re-Energize in conversation with... In each episode, we'll interview one senior member from our industry and take a deep dive into their career and passions in offshore renewables. In this first episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Deputy Chief Executive of Renewable UK, Melanie Orn. After a career in politics, including four years as MP for Great Grimsby, Melanie now takes on Renewable UK's responsibilities within the offshore wind sector deal, including skills and diversity. So, Melanie, thanks for joining us today. As part of our In Conversation With, we'd like to get to know you a little bit better, and more specifically, your journey into offshore renewable energy. Can you tell our listeners a little bit of your background and career today? Hi, Tony. Great to be with you today. Thank you very much for inviting me along. Before I joined Renewable UK, I was um, elected as a Member of Parliament, and I had a couple of interesting jobs while I was an MP. Um, Obviously, you've got the constituency side of things, so you're getting to know people in the local community and working with various groups locally. But within Parliament, I was the Shadow Housing Minister. And prior to that, I was the Shadow Deputy Leader of the House of Commons, which I think is one of the longest titles of any (laughs) role that you can hold in there. I was there for about four and a half years before the 2019 general election, which uh, kind of abruptly stopped that political career. Before that, I worked in the trade union movement. So I was uh, an organiser in trade unions for five years and was working predominantly in the public sector. So I was organising, recruiting, running campaigns and generally watching the, the governance of local branches and making sure that everything was going well and that we were increasing our membership. So I was involved in a few industrial disputes. Not quite the thing that industry wants to hear about, but still I was <laughs> involved in some of those. And also dealing with some quite big changes in the public sector because there were quite a lot of job losses in the period of time that I was there so big reorganizations um, supporting people through Tupi and so on which was an amazing kind of way of understanding different people in their jobs and seeing all of the positive things that trade unions can do as well including supporting learning through the union learning fund and before I was an organizer I worked for uh, the Labour Party in their headquarters and I left there as the head of compliance, which sounds very formal and like I should have had some kind of a uniform, was generally referred to internally as the person who will say no to everything. Um, <laughs> which is funny now because I feel like I'm the person who says yes to everything. So <laughs> quite well, a turnaround. That's a pretty impressive CV and uh, industrial disputes back in the news at the moment, but hopefully not in our sector, Melanie. No, so, not in our sector. <laughs> so you made this shift from trade unionism into politics and now into offshore renewables. How transferable are you finding some of your skills and knowledge? I think that 
in terms of skills, that there are lots of things that translate. I think the ability to communicate across a very, very wide audience. I think that one of the things that I have been able to bring is uh, distilling some quite complex messaging and simplifying them for a different audience, bringing people together, which is a natural thing that people in politics do, and try and find common solutions so that you can actually get some traction and make some changes. So those are really quite strong qualities. The knowledge side of things, in Grimsby, obviously, there's a burgeoning offshore wind industry, specifically focused around offshore maintenance and the operations side of things. And it was something that I was really close to when I was a member of parliament and thought that it was something that people in the local area didn't know enough about. So I was a candidate in back in 2014. And it was one of the first places that I went to see different companies working in offshore wind to go and talk to them about how they expand their opportunities to a wider cohort so that the local community where they were basing themselves actually felt that it was a part of their identity and that I could use it, I suppose, to help to describe a vision of the future of the area. And the industry was remarkably receptive. I hadn't anticipated quite how receptive it was going to be. But once I got elected, there were so many things that we partnered on, bringing a skills fair to the local community, encouraging more partnerships with local community organisations that have lasted the test of time beyond my period of time in office. And it does feel like the industry is much more integrated with the local community in tune with what it wants to try and achieve, not just for the area, but for the people in the area. Because there's no point in a company having lots and lots of, lots of success if the place that it's based in doesn't feel like it's a part of that success as well. Mm. So whether it's apprenticeships or whether it's jobs or whether it's contracts or whether it's supporting local community activities, they're all really positive messages. I mean, that's a really interesting insight. Not ability for offshore wind to regenerate coastal communities is perhaps something we, we can return to. And particularly that foresight that you had to see that the skills and the opportunity existed in 2014, 2015. And we're still sort of on a journey realizing that opportunity now and it continues to grow. Before we move on to that, just tell me a little bit about what a day as Deputy Chief Executive of Renewable UK looks like and what motivates you on a day-to-day basis? It's incredibly busy. I always thought that my job as an MP was incredibly busy. It really is very, very full. So my areas of responsibility, I've got some internally within Renewable UK, so I'm responsible for the the operational side of the organisation. So making sure that our staff have got all of the information that they need, that all of our systems are properly functioning. So that's one piece of it. I've also got responsibility around skills and diversity, particularly through the Offshore Wind Industry Council angle. So working very closely with the Investment in Talent Group, trying to create and forge new communities and new uh, connections across the industry so that we get the latest knowledge and insight so that the industry can prepare itself better for future need. 
and uh, I get to do great things like this, which is very exciting. Last week, I was on BBC News because we had the announcement around Hornsey 2 coming on stream, and mm. it linked in very closely with all of the conversations around the cost of energy at the moment and how renewables can help to bring that cost down. So there's quite a lot there around understanding the latest policy developments and trying to share that information with as wide an audience as possible. So it's not a daily grind. It's definitely that two days are never the same and get to work with some amazing people. I also, I look after our shadow board as well. So we've got an initiative in Renewable UK to try and bring in the next generation of future leaders. So not only do we run a couple of sessions every year around future leaders, so getting people into a room and trying to inspire them and teach them, um, but we also run a shadow board of 13 people and we try and make that shadow board as diverse as we want the industry to be so we use use that so that we can have people within their companies or within the industry as they get promoted using the experience of the shadow board hopefully to boost them in the industry so that we've got those role models so we can definitely say you know it's not just a case of laying out targets or statistics or anything like that but we've got real life role models and you know people from outside the industry can look and say well there's somebody like me their journey is very similar to mine that's the kind of person that I want to be which I think is really important. No I think that the shadow board is a great concept and actually a great way of developing people too and giving them exposure to some complex decisions and, and a greater profile. They do get access to everything that our board gets access to pretty much. I don't think there's anything that we haven't shared with them as yet. And they also get access to those current industry leaders. So they can learn directly. They can have informal conversations with them, whether it's about their own career or whether it's about the direction of the industry so that they get a much more macro view of the sector because I think we're on our second cohort of the shadow board at the moment and when they come in they're quite focused on their day job whatever it is in terms of their day job whether they're looking at I don't know digital solutions for offshore wind or whether they're doing sales or business development or they're an engineer whatever it is they're very focused on that part of the job but they really do have a desire to understand all facets of the industry So they get access to people who are in those senior positions who do get the full read across, whether it's in their company. Lots of the board members that we have at Renewable UK also have other hats that they're wearing. So, you know, they get lots of different perspectives. And so it gives them a real opportunity to kind of leapfrog people in terms of their knowledge and understanding. And so you've been with Renewable UK for three three years now, I think, and you, you mentioned the Offshore Wind Industry Council. But what are the standout achievements in those last three years? I think it's been incredible, actually, the last three years. I, I couldn't have anticipated. I've been probably two and a half years. I give myself a bit of a break. I'm sure I've got more targets that I wish I would have met if I was at a three-year threshold. <laughs> but I could never have anticipated quite where the sector would be. I think... The sector deal that was signed in 2019 really gave a massive boost to the sector. So has seen it become much more realistic as a prospect of becoming a serious part of the energy mix going forward, being that backbone of the energy system. The evidence that we have managed to gather to prove how economical offshore wind is and beneficial, not just for the environment, but also for our domestic energy security, 
means that we are flying in a way that we have never seen. And it's changed the way that we are viewed in the political realm. There are still some detractors, but, you know, the arguments that we were having five, ten years ago are just not the same kind of arguments that we're having now. Now it's about how do we accelerate? How do we move forward? How do we do it faster, quicker, cheaper, all the rest of it? But seeing offshore wind at the top of the Prime Minister's 10-point plan is a remarkable achievement. I don't think we would have had that ten years ago. So... That's been a remarkable achievement. Seeing more offshore wind come on stream, seeing the targets increased, it's quite frightening. But I think it's testament to the strength of the industry. Obviously, there's still a lot more to do and we've got to get on with delivering it. (laughs) But we're on our way as more of those wind farms are opening. So it's an exciting time to be part of the sector. It's just had such rapid growth. Even seeing some of the leasing rounds, you know, around spot wind and the expected capacity there is really exciting because you just think there is a future for this sector. That really sets the context of where I want to take the conversation now, which is talk a little bit about, about skills and development, particularly in offshore wind. You mentioned earlier about the linkage between Grimsby and operations and maintenance. I was just wondering if the UK is truly to become an industrial superpower in in offshore wind, where do you see the opportunities lying for new jobs, new skills in particular? One thing that we are lacking, and I know that there is some dispute around this, not least because I said it in a speech and then somebody went on straight after me and said, well, of course there's that. But I think that we do need a proper industrial strategy for the country. And I don't think that we have got one, certainly not one that links everything together. If we are to really properly succeed, we need to have something that is much more comprehensive than we have got at the moment. That's not to say that, you know, obviously in in offshore wind, we're doing well at the moment. And that is a good thing. It's also quite a fragile thing. We're recording this today. We just had an announcement. We've got a brand new leader of the Conservative Party who tomorrow will become prime minister. And it is as yet unclear about whether or not we will still get the same kind of prominence as we have had under the most recent premiership unless we get some kind of cohesion, because I think at the moment we're moving forward industrially within offshore wind, but there are still lots of bits around that that hold it back. And increasingly, skills is one of those things. And skills hasn't been top of the political agenda. It does come into it occasionally, but it's not something that is front and centre. And you can't have an industrial plan without having the right people with the right skills at the right time to be able to deliver it. It's one of the reasons why I, you know, as an MP, I held a skills fair for this industry thinking, well, if it's going to grow, let's open those opportunities up to local people. Let's tell them now what it is that they need to do to get a look in at this new sector on their doorstep. There's lots of good work going on at a local level. I'd really love to see that work that's happening in local communities be brought to the fore as a kind of national example of how you can deliver the right kind of training and getting the people in numbers that we're going to need and use that as a kind of a plan, a bit of a framework. And we've talked a lot about frameworks in the past, Tony. We love a framework. (laughs) I often quote a chair of one of our sister catapults, a, a chap called Alan Cook, he's achieved great things in in his career. He often says that if we wait until the new technology is developed and deployed, 
before we think about the skills needed to support it, it will already be too late. It strikes me that the whole net zero technology, you started with that, that, that this needs to be a cross-sector approach. You know, that whole net zero agenda is introducing deadlines and targets that no previous industrial revolution has had to achieve. It, 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 we've, all, we've got this sort of impending deadline that we need to achieve. And, and yet we're pursuing our traditional approach to education and retraining and, and skills. Are you advocating that we need to radically rethink how we provide that pipeline of skills? I think industry's doing what industry should be doing. And the purpose of the companies in this sector are doing what their companies are supposed to be doing, right? So they're supposed to be building wind farms and that's what they're getting on and doing. And they'll do that in any way that they can in order to meet those deadlines. And that's their focus because that's what they know and that is their business model. Their business model is not about the kind of future pipeline piece because that isn't their area of expertise. Unless we get that expertise brought in, whether it's from government or whether it's from the education sector, and make sure that we have got things running in tandem, then we are going to find ourselves in a really difficult situation. I don't think that that means that we will fail. I do think it means that companies will just look for other solutions. And that will mean looking further afield. And that will mean that actually our uh, domestic supply of talent will miss out because it just won't be ready. That's the biggest thing that I think for me in terms of judging the industry on success or failure would be an area where maybe, you know, we're hitting a, a C minus rather so than A+. It's interesting that you took the view that industry have a short-term view and it's government's role to take the long-term view. Is there a way that where industry and government can both come together and take a longer-term view of the world? That probably speaks entirely to my political perspective, doesn't it? That I do think that there is a role for government and the state. Um, and in terms of bringing it closer together, yeah, I mean, there are always opportunities to do that. You do need to have the policy drive to be able to do that, though. And I don't know whether there is sufficient understanding. So, like, for Renewable UK, most of our liaison takes place with bays and very little from a Renewable UK perspective, takes place with DfE, for yeah. example. Yeah. Yeah. And we're told that, you know, governments, uh, the departments, they're working together and, you know, they're in lockstep. Um, and yet we have very little to do with those other government departments that have got a role to play in ensuring that industry is successful. And that time lag and that time delay, I think, is, is problematic. So I think that for us as an organisation, I think we probably need to do a lot more in terms of focusing on building our connections within DfE, as well as continuing to, to press the point. Because I think the difficulty we have as an organisation is that offshore wind in particular is doing very well now and is kind of accepted as policy, but you can't ever take it for granted. And this shift in leadership yeah. means that we still have to keep pressing that. And first and foremost, we have to keep pressing that because without an industry, we don't have the jobs to offer. You're probably a really good example there, right? Of stuff that is happening less at a DFE level, but certainly at a, at a local level with local authorities and education providers and LEPs of bringing 
the two things together. So hey, you've, exactly. you've preempted my next question. Yeah, look at is, that. I'm is, this, them up. <laughs> is this all about solving things at the national level or is there a role for both regional politics? And indeed, remember, the clusters were formed in response to the sector deal too. And, and, and what's the role of local industry and local government? And there is. I think that what you've got, there's a, a slight kind of patchwork approach on that local level. So in some areas, you might have mayors that are very engaged. In other areas, you might have mayors that don't see this as a priority because they can't really see or feel the tangible benefits or they haven't spotted the opportunity or their focus lies elsewhere. And I think that that's one of the things that I think is problematic, because I think that this is an industry that can have benefits for the whole of the country, coastal areas, which need this kind of industry. They really need this kind of industry. You know, local people, young people, they need something to look towards, something that is successful, something that is brand new, something that's, um, you know, much more interesting than what they might have previously thought was available in their local area, stopping that kind of brain drain issue that everybody has talked about probably for the last 40 years. So I think that there is, it's just that the Priorities are so different in different areas. And I think, you know, the clusters, again, have got, definitely have got a role to play because they're so well connected to the local infrastructure of schools and colleges and universities in their patch. Still doesn't necessarily guarantee that they get the right people Mm. through their doors. And that's the challenge, because if you're doing operations and maintenance in Grimsby, then what you need is people at all different levels kind of studying that doesn't just mean that you're getting a few apprenticeships uh, and apprentices through your door but it does mean at those more senior levels as well well where are you going to be getting those graduates and how connected are they to the activities that you're running in your patch we don't have a university here we're quite detached in that sense and we won't be alone because there'll be lots of because we're built around towns and on the coast rather than cities so there's definitely a role to play, and I think it's a strong role to play. You can see that things are coming together and being yeah. delivered where there is a plan. So someone needs to have a plan. Thanks, Mo. Uh, I'm going to think... say you have the plan, Tony. You've got the plan. <laughs> I've got lots of ideas. <laughs> I think I'd like to move our conversation on a little bit to quality and diversity. We talked a couple of times about the offshore wind sector deal, and it laid out several important targets one of which was that women should make up a third of the workforce by 2030. How are we doing against that target? We could be doing a bit better. So we just had the last survey, and I'm saying it quietly because it's oh, it could be doing better. So we had the last survey. Every year we do a, a full survey of the industry, breaking down job roles and skill levels and uh, where those jobs are located in the country. And the most recent report showed that there was an increase in women in the sector, but only by about one and a half percent. So not massive. So we're running just short of 20 percent of women in the sector at the moment. So we've got seven years to hit that 30 percent target. And I think 33 is the stretch target. That's a big jump. And the other things that we've been tasked with doing as part of the sector deal also involve transitioning people from the wider energy industry into offshore wind. Now, if we do that, and we've got a military responsibility as well, you know, transitioning people from the military into the sector. If we just do that, we are probably going to see those statistics on women in the industry falling further behind because they're already male-dominated industries or sectors. 
there's quite a lot that still needs to be done. And there is a, there's currently actually a, a study that the University of East Anglia are doing uh, for the Offshore Wind Industry Council and the Investment in Talent Group commissioned that to look at the barriers for women entering the sector. I think we probably all know what they are, but actually having a, a quantitative and qualitative survey on that that really pinpoints the issues. Once we know what those problems are, then we can set our minds to resolving them. But seven years isn't a huge amount of time to overcome quite big differences in terms of the numbers. Have you thought about beyond the identifying the barriers to the initiatives that you think might be run? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are already some good schemes. I think that people are, in, companies are using the apprenticeship scheme very well. So they're using that, you know, for new people coming into the sector, kind of training their own and handpicking those people so that they have got much more of a mix and diversity amongst that new intake, which is really, really positive. Because again, it comes down to that role model, you know, fine, a tech, an offshore wind technician might not traditionally be something that you think of doing, as a girl in school but actually if you see somebody uh, you know who went to your school or went to your college and they're all over local advertising because they do get used for local advertising quite a lot <laughs> as kind of symbols of the industry then it does open up a new avenue that doesn't guarantee anything of course and I think that there are other things as well there there have been things that have been identified as, as being problematic so looking at the way that job descriptions are drafted and making sure that those are much more uh, open and are not using the kind of language that is more likely to appeal to men than women, which I think is a really good thing to do. We've got turbine manufacturers and turbine operators that are looking at the way that they run their shift patterns and the facilities that they've got available so that it's not as um, uncomfortable. I mean, I think that that should have been the case in the first place because I don't think anybody should be without basic facilities. But if consideration for, for women and women's needs is aiding it for everybody, then that's much better. And then there's just basic things like, I don't know, making sure that we don't just focus on jobs like technicians because the industry is huge. Anybody who's got an interest in geography or marine biology or is particularly good at, uh, I don't know, maps or uh, interested in aviation or even a corporate role, you know, the, the kind of finance and HR and all that, all of those kind of roles that have to exist. They're very kind of open to everybody and they don't have those obvious barriers that you might think of. I think that's a great point because the, the scale of the challenge is so great. I mean, we're talking from consenting, so environmental impact, and all of the legal ramifications. There's a great involvement from the legal fraternity in our industry, right through to surveying, design, manufacture, installation, overseeing that, and then right through to operation and maintenance. It really is incumbent on us to paint that opportunity. And you mentioned role models, and of course, England winning the European Championship has presented huge role models for women in a in traditionally male-dominated area. Took yeah. my grandson to uh, football training for the first session of the season, and the influx of young girls into the training was absolutely phenomenal. So my point being, the impact of role models cannot be uh, underestimated. And of course, you're a role model, Mel, as top of the tree in your business. Just to, in terms of pipeline, you touched on something from stemming. You start at apprentice level, but actually it starts before then. It's STEM engagement, apprenticeship level. You mentioned degree apprenticeship. I'm also very pa passionate about getting enough 
PhD students, postdoctorate study, and to make sure that we provide an attractive investment proposition. And it's the skills that really attract investors. We've been through a fantastic trot through of uh, your career, of the offshore wind industry, and, and particular focus on skills. Any final thoughts just before we wrap up? It's such an exciting industry to be in. And, you know, I think we have to, as an industry, do everything that we can to get more awareness out there of the different kind of roles and whether that's engaging at a younger level and getting to kids while they are young or whether it is focusing on bringing people with different industry experience in so that we improve the quality of the work that we're doing all the time there's nothing that should be off limits to us really but we do need to put a real focus on that and I think industry has got more work to do in terms of collaboration There are some good initiatives looking at things like Faces of Wind, looking at the Just Transition Showcase that Renewable UK put together. It provides a much more detailed insight into the industry as a whole. We've even got online learning modules on the Offshore Wind Industry Council website that give you an introduction to offshore wind. I've seen that in some clusters you know they're they're running sessions with young people doing lego builds of offshore wind farms you know so there's so much more that we can do in terms of outreach but we shouldn't think that we're not doing well we are it's just that the expectation of getting from kind of 30,000 people that we employ at the moment to around 100,000 people in 2030 is quite significant and we've got a responsibility to get that right. I'd like to thank you for taking part, Mel, in this first episode of In Conversation With, in this series of Re-Energize. It's now time to de-energize until next month. In the meantime, listeners can find more about ORE Catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORE Catapult.